Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Have you ever caught yourself just wanting more stuff? Now let's be honest. Have you ever caught yourself wanting more stuff? I've certainly caught myself wanting more stuff. And at times, I think I've had the thought, if I just had that thing, I'd be happy. You know, more things, better things, nicer things, better homes, better cars, better clothes, better food. It's not bad to have something that's better, but it is bad when striving after things becomes prominent in our lives, when our cravings overtake us. And we can think back to uh, Dr. Robert Jones teaching us an uprooting anger and, and talking about a, a craving when it's something that dominates our thinking, that becomes predominant in our hearts and minds. Well, why is it bad to allow something, the striving after things to become predominant? Why is that bad? Well, mainly it's bad because it's not what we're created for. We're created for the glory of God, not the glory of ourselves or the satisfaction of ourselves. Though bringing glory to God brings the greatest satisfaction of all. But it is also bad, not just because we're not purpose-built, not because we're purpose, not just because we're purpose-built for something else, which is God's glory, rather than the satisfaction of self, but it's also bad to just want more and more things because those things cannot satisfy. And the cravings behind those things, again, it can't satisfy because of the first thing, because we're created for the glory of God, the glory of another and not for the self. But imagine this, you or someone you know is bent on seeking stuff, things. Now, rarely is a person shallow enough to say, I'm just living for the stuff I can get, right? People don't usually say that. They know better than to say that. They know that everybody will look down on them if they say that. But nonetheless, that's a big, common temptation that we can fall into either momentarily or for a short period of time or for a lifetime, right? Living for stuff. But imagine someone you know, let's call it a friend of yours, uh, is bent on seeking stuff. And they get good at acquiring stuff more and more and more. And that person tends to think that satisfaction is just around the corner. That one more thing, a slightly bigger home and a better location and a better car, uh, something more luxurious or comfortable or uh, and more things or, or better food. Well, we know it's going to happen there, don't we? we? Even though we ourselves are tempted to do that very thing, we know the outcome there will only be satisfaction for a brief period of time, if at all. Because once that thing is acquired, because that's not what we're built for, because that thing can't really satisfy, because it's not getting to the root of our biggest problem, it doesn't solve anything. In fact, it makes it worse. Because we realize once again that we're not satisfied yet. Now, what if humanity is doing this very thing as a typical approach to life? And I think if you look around the world, it's hard to 
argue against that reality, even though very few people would actually say it. I do think that's a big common thing in life. What if humanity is doing this as a typical approach in life? And I don't just mean with contentment and desiring things. I mean with many or all of the most important matters in life. What if humans solve problem after problem? And Americans are especially good at solving problems, problem after problem. But the true problem is that they're always solving the lesser problem. So it's like acquiring the thing that you thought you needed, but once you got it, it didn't satisfy And that wouldn't make much sense, would it, to do that, to always solve the lesser problem. And if that's the case, that humanity is focusing on the lesser troubles, then the world is going to get worse, right? Rather than better. If we never get to the heart of the problem, it's going to get worse. Well, here's the good news. We're not enslaved to missing the big issue or to being blind to the big issue or the bigger problem or the main problem. And that's not because we are so very perceptive. In other words, we're not, it's, it's not that we're going to get freedom from this because we ourselves are so insightful, so perceptive. The good news is there's a way out, but I think we have to realize from the start, it doesn't come from within. But rather, we're not enslaved to blindness about our biggest problem because God, God is the ultimate problem solver. God sees the true problem with humanity. God sees the true problem with you. Do this exercise right now, just for a moment. Take a moment and do this exercise. What do you think is your biggest problem in life right now? Now, whatever you think it is, let's just acknowledge we may or may not be right. We could be wrong about that. Let us also acknowledge that when God looks at you and me, He doesn't have any uncertainty. He knows exactly what our biggest problem is. He knows. God is the ultimate problem solver. God sees perfectly. He assesses perfectly. He interprets perfectly. He's never deluded. He's never sidetracked. He's never distracted. He's never wrong. And we should praise Him because without His perfect vision, life would be complex and confusing beyond any interpretation that we could muster. God alone makes sense out of the world, and God alone knows what our biggest problem today is, and God alone holds the solution for the very problem that He can identify. So let's put it like this. The Lord solves our biggest problem, therefore trust Him to solve every problem. If He solves the biggest, and He has that ability, and He sees it, and He can solve it, and He does solve it, well, guess what? He's able to solve every other problem that we have. And that's very reassuring, isn't it? Think about it for a moment. What if you could have all your problems solved. Well, where's the place to begin? The place to begin is with the one who can solve the biggest problem. So we're going to take our text in two points today. First of all, the solution is a servant. The solution is a servant. 
Israel had a lot of problems. In fact, they had so many problems, it's hard to even talk about Israel at this point in Israel's history. They had been divided into two nations, with the northern half nation taken off to slavery and exile by the time of this writing, somewhere around 700 B.C. Beyond that, the southern half nation of Israel, when they were divided into, there was the north and the southern. The southern half nation was known as Judah, so really, all this time, whenever we talk about the Israelites, at this point in history, we're really talking talking about the Judahites. And it's fine to call them Israelites, but we should recognize this is the southern kingdom. And if that's not enough, that confusion, that brokenness, that exile that the north had already faced, the Judahites, the southern kingdom, these Israelites are going to be overcome by the Babylonians. They're going to be hauled off into exile. They had a lot of problems. But they had already received prophecy about God's miraculous provision. The Lord's going to do something unheard of in history. God's going to deliver them. Consider this. They've got a huge problem. Exile. Removed from their country. Can you imagine? But God is going to give miraculous provision. He's going to do something unheard of in history. He's going to deliver them as an entire people group from their scattered exile. He's going to return them to their homeland. It's going to take a mighty miracle, but God is the one doing it. And so, He can do the mighty miracle. He can provide. And He's going to use the Persian king Cyrus to accomplish His plan. And that's quite a prophecy that Isaiah has been giving. Quite a promise that God's giving to His people. And you know, however, that even though God has promised, think of this, even though He's promised to return Israel to their land, Getting back to their land isn't truly their problem. See, being exiled from their physical location isn't the main thing. It's a big problem, but it's not their true problem. The true problem is that God sent them into exile because of their rebellion against Him, their idolatry, their immorality, their injustice, their greed. So if God simply returns them to Israel, we're kind of left with a question. If he simply returns them to Jerusalem and the region surrounding it, what's the question that comes to mind? The question that comes to mind is, well, aren't they just going to do it all over again? Isn't isn't it the same problem? Because they have a deeper problem. And so the deeper problem is, what about the relationship with God? What's the nature of that relationship now? The deeper problem is, will God still consent to be their God? The deeper problem is, is God done with them by now, or is He still going to call them by His name? They still belong to Him. And that's where Isaiah 49 comes in. You're going to see deliverance language in this chapter as we read along. It's salvation language. It's glorious language. It's amazing language. It applies to us language. But you're not going to see anything about Babylon here. You're not going to see anything about Cyrus in chapter 49 as in previous chapters. And you know why? Because God is talking about something bigger, something more eternal, something longer lasting. God is going to address their bigger problem, namely their relationship with Him, their status with Him. The bigger problem is Israel's relationship with the Lord. And the Lord is going to solve it. So, open your Bibles to, uh, if you haven't already, Isaiah 49. Let me read for you verses 1 through 7. 
verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. And I'll just pause to say, the coastlands were also often used metaphorically to say, basically, all of the people within the land, starting on, on all the coasts and everybody in between. So everyone from afar, all the people, listen to me. And then halfway through verse 1, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And, And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And you see here, as as you read through this, Israel does not deserve relationship with the Lord But God is going to assure it. He's going to affirm it. God has chosen them. They are His people. He will be their God. There is no revoking that, no changing that. He's going to gather them to Himself. And as I mentioned, this gets extended to the ends of the earth. As I read earlier about the people all the way out to the coast, but also in verse 6, God will make a light to the nation. So not only will He solve the biggest problem for His people, ancient Israel, by reassuring them that He is their God, but He's going to solve the biggest problem for all those who would turn to His light. In other words, people like us at the far ends of the earth, who don't come from the lineage of Jerusalem and need a Savior. So you see, the big problem for every human is this. Here's the big problem for us. It's do we or do we not belong to God? Do you belong to God? It may feel like you are in exile in life right now. And the pressures of life may seem like the biggest problems you have. But even in exile, even under great duress, the pressures that you face, whatever you face in your life, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is this. Do you belong to God? Do I belong to God? Because if I belong to God, then every other problem is a lesser problem and not near as difficult for God to solve. And that is what the Lord is addressing 
How does God solve this problem? How does God bring His rebellious people back to Himself? How does God, the Redeemer, redeem? Well, He uses a particular mode. He uses a person in a particular mode. God calls on His servant. He calls on His servant. Now, if you've been in the Isaiah series with us, we have entitled it Hope Through Judgment, then you may remember that the word servant has been applied to two particular persons. First of all, it's been applied to ancient Israel as a whole. They're God's servants, you know, all of God's people. In that sense today, same thing. If we're a part of God's people, we are His servant. But there's another servant as well. Now, now God's people, ancient Israel, they've been rebellious, they've been lazy, they've been unfaithful servants. And many times that applies to us today too, doesn't it? The Lord help us. But servant has also been applied to God's special, divine, or messianic anointed one. God's Savior, a particular person who is His true, always faithful servant through whom God will send salvation to His people at large. In other words, this one particular person will be the ultimate servant, the true Israel in a sense, in which all of of God's people will find salvation. In other words, through the faithfulness of the one true servant, all of God's people, all of God's Israel, all of God's servants will also become faithful to Him. And you may know that Isaiah has... Four servant songs. And in the book of Isaiah, there are four servant songs. The most famous is coming up in Isaiah chapter, chapter 52 and 53. Looking forward to hearing about that. But the first servant song was in chapter 42. You might remember we talked about that a few chapters ago. This one here in chapter 49, it's the second servant song. And what a song. What a song it is. A servant connotes a humble posture. A servant is the attendant of another. They help the one in charge, the one in authority, the one under whose authority they serve. But servant is, is not a belittled position. A servant is a very honored position. And I, I think in today's age, in our Western society, with all of its emphasis on victimhood, and it, it, you know, you're hearing about victimhood in one sense or another all the time. You're seeing people put themselves in as many categories of victim as possible so that they can leverage moral authority over others. It's just the way of the world and the environment of the culture right now. And so the idea of a servant, you know, someone who serves another, can seem so terrible almost. What a horrible thing. It was not always seen in such a way. Yes, some servants were at the very bottom of the servant totem pole, but other servants were very honored and very exalted. It's an honorable thing to be a faithful servant. What does the Lord say? That we should want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. The word minister is has evolved, or the etymology of the word minister comes from the concept of servanthood. And so think of this, when a king or a queen wants to appoint a, a, a first servant, the servant to, um, to manage all the other servants, what are they called? Prime 
minister, first servant, prime minister. That's a very noble, a very high position. And so for us to be servants is not a terrible thing. It's not demeaning to be a servant, not when you're a servant of the Most High. And so we should take it in stride. As Christians, we need to have this mentality that servanthood is a glorious, a noble thing. It's chivalry at the, in its highest form. And we should know this not only because of the etymology of the word servant or the history of servanthood, but because when God sends His Messiah, He comes in the form of a servant. God is saying that His particular faithful servant will accomplish His work of redemption. This servant will serve so faithfully that He will be the literal Redeemer and bring about the redemption of God's people, both ancient Israelites, but also people from around the world, Gentiles even, in the centuries to come, even to us today. In other words, to solve our biggest problem, which is our relationship with God, whether or not we belong to Him or not, God does not send His Savior in the form of a general, or in the form of a king, or in the form of a mighty ruler, or in the form of a very wealthy person, or in the form of a mighty man, though Jesus is all of these. But primarily He comes in the form of a servant. God sends His Savior to save us, to redeem us, in the form of a servant. God solves our greatest problem of relating to Him through a servant who serves us. And that service is the greatest loving sacrifice. Jesus, the Messiah, goes to Jerusalem knowing they will take His life and gives it willingly through much anguish, dies on a cross, serving us so that His death could pay the penalty for anyone who will put their trust in Him and say, I follow Him. I belong to Him. He's my Lord. I'm His servant now. All of a sudden then, our sins are forgiven and we are redeemed before God and we have our greatest problem solved. We belong. We belong to God. Notice that the servant speaks in verse 4. I'll put it up on the screen for us. Verse 4. There we go. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my, my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. So the servant is actually speaking. It can be a little confusing at points to understand who's actually speaking through chapter 49. It's a fascinating study. You actually see uh, this kind of of dialogue going back and forth in other places in Scripture as well, like Psalm chapter 2. Well, you see it here. And I want to point this out because it's the first indication. We get a little more detail here about the servant, that ultimate servant. And it's the first indication that not everything is going to go smoothly for the servant of the Lord. That when He comes, not everyone's going to appreciate His service. Things are going to be bumpy. His, he's going to labor and it will appear to be futile. 
and worse will come. We're going to learn. This is important for us to understand. Because in our pride, we continually think of a Savior as, as only strong, as only mighty, as only kingly. And again, He is all that. But what's God's way to save us? It's the humble way. It's the low way. It's the way of the servant. And so he's not going to come and everything's just going to be smooth for him and everything's just going to work out for him. And he's going to say, we're going to straighten this out. And then it's straightened out. But instead he's going to live like one of us and he's going to face all the challenges, the pain, the hardships of life. He'll face even more than we face because in every circumstance he's going to take the path of righteousness. He'll never compromise like you and I do. And because of that, he will face certain death at the hands of rebellious humanity. And even that will be his service. And if things, my brothers and sisters, don't go smoothly for the servant, then we know that as his servants, small less servants, that we know that life's not just going to go smoothly for us, don't we? The servants of the Lord, if our Lord in His service, face difficulty, challenges, pain, and even death, then we also will face the same. Brothers and sisters, don't view every obstacle in life as God's frown on your life. Don't view every obstacle as His frown. God is not against you. Even in our sin, where God is against our sin. That's an invitation. It's an opportunity as long as we draw breath to turn and repent. And when we do, do you know what we experience? The smiling, loving countenance of God who is pleased to send His redemption to us in the form of a servant who gives His life for us. You will find the smiling face of the Lord even in your repentance, maybe especially in our repentance. Now, just before we go on to our next point, I do want to read for you uh, a, a verse uh, through verse 13. I, I want to read… Uh, you know what? Let's skip down, and I will just read verse 13 for the sake of time. So, verse 13 is a song of praise. So the idea that the Lord's servant would come and God is going to redeem His people, He's going to solve their biggest problem, it's going to result in a song of praise. And here's what it says, chapter 49, verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Absolutely. The Lord solves our biggest problem. So shouldn't we therefore trust Him to solve every other problem that we have? And doesn't that put things in perspective? Doesn't it comfort you to know if He's solving the biggest thing, don't worry about everything else. He's going to solve it. So that brings us secondly to the solution again which comes by grace. God solves our biggest problem through a servant. He's a servant. And He solves that problem by grace. 
And you know, when I consider my willful sin against the Lord, my willful sin, when I take a step back, you know, in the moment it might not affect me. It's like, oh, that's not a big deal. You know, everybody struggles with that or everybody, you know, I, I mean, others do worse than that. Whatever, whatever justification I give myself. When I take a step back, maybe in prayer before the Lord in the morning, and when I go to Him during the day and, and, I, and I crown His name, and, and now, you know, the moment I step into His presence, make myself aware and call on His name. We all, we all can do this. We can call on the name of the Lord and, and, and immediately we're aware of Him. And maybe in those moments when there are times when I, when I, when I take stock of my sin, oh my goodness, I am shot through with arrogance. I can't believe my own pride. I know the Lord requires holiness from me, that He desires purity, that He calls me to walk in a worthy manner, that He calls me to be selfless and steadfast and faithful. When I hear the complaints that ring in my own ears and they're brought into the presence of God, it's, oh God, how can I sin like this before You? When I remember, as we talked about earlier, that my life is meant to glorify Him, And yet, like the Apostle Paul who writes in Romans 7, I find myself doing the things I do not want to do. Those are the things I do. And the things I want to do, I do not do. And I cry out with him, who will deliver me from this body of death? I know we can all relate to this, right? Our struggle with sin how God's Spirit wrestles with the flesh. I don't deserve relationship with God. I don't deserve to be called His child. I I don't deserve His favor in my life. Yet here we are with so much favor from Him that we don't deserve. Why is that? Because God is gracious to us. He's gracious to us. His His orientation to His people is grace. He gives us what we do not deserve. He's kind to us beyond anything we've we've ever merited. He gifts us and doesn't pay us back for the wages that we've garnered, but rather gives us the gifts that we don't deserve. Grace is far greater, my dear friends, than we can imagine, certainly more than we think that it is. And it's shown to us in the manner of God's salvation. Think of it. His Savior comes as a servant in the form of a servant, and the servant comes. He's the solution. That servant himself, he's the solution. He comes because God is gracious. So he comes in the form of a servant and he comes because God is love, because God is gracious. It's hard to believe. And it's why in verse 14 we see this understandable response from the Israelites who have been exiled. And you know what? If they're caught in self-pity, we can kind of understand why, right? We can kind of understand why. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.